0: Chapter twenty of Forest Days by G. P. R. James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter twenty. A few more pages of dry details, dear reader, and then for nothing but brief scenes and rapid action. This, if you please, is a chapter of pure history, and therefore those who are well read in the annals of the times may pass it over without any particular attention. To all who are not, however, it will be found absolutely necessary to the right understanding of that which is to follow. On Hugh de Mothamer's arrival at Hereford, he found the news of Edward's escape common to all the town, but nevertheless he thought it necessary to communicate first to his uncle and then to the Earl of Leicester all that had taken place after he had left them in the morning. "'Some three hundred horses?' "'said de Montford, as he listened to the young nobleman's account of his meeting with Richard de Ashby. "'They are bold upon my life, but they teach us that we have been somewhat negligent.' "'And so you unhorsed the traitor, but could neither kill nor take him. "'It is a pity. You are sure that he is not dead?' "'Not sure, my lord,' replied Hugh, "'but I rather think not, for I felt the spear strike and then glance off.' "'I would fain have brought him into Hereford.' "'Have you heard?' continued de Montfort. "'That our good friends, the Earl of Ashby and his son, have left us, "'so that I fear some hopes and expectations which your uncle mentioned "'regarding a fair lady's hand may suffer disappointment.' "'I have heard it, my lord,' answered Hugh, "'and am I confess not a little grieved. "'Nevertheless,' "'Well, what of, nevertheless?' asked de Montfort, seeing that he paused. "'Why, nevertheless, my lord,' replied Hugh, "'I cannot but hope that I shall succeed at last. "'I have never yet seen a matter of love which was destined to end happily "'begin smoothly at the first. Ah, "'I hope,' said de Montfort, "'hope is like a hungry boy who I once saw burn his mouth with his porridge.' For he still consoled himself, poor urchin, by saying that it would be cool enough by and by. May it be as you wish, my young friend. But so good night, for neither you nor I can mend what is gone amiss this day. As Hugh was leaving the room, de Montfort called to him again, saying, Pray ask your uncle to spend an hour with me to night. I want his warlike counsel in our present strait. I know no one more fitted to advise me. And none more willing, my lord, replied Hugh, quitting the room. Bustle, activity, preparation, the movement of troops, rumours of strange events, some false, some true, portents, even miracles. For those were times in which every man, were the magnifying glasses of superstition, doubts, expectations, suppositions, in regard to the motions of every following day, filled up the next fortnight busily. Every part of the country from one end to the other was stirred up to fight for one party or the other, and bands of soldiers moving across to join their several banners, often encountered in the same village, and by their contests, frightened the isle from its propriety. According to the best accounts that could be obtained, the number of troops which gathered round Prince Edward and the Earl of Gloucester was considerably larger than that which joined de Montfort in Hereford, and, being principally composed of cavalry, these levies dropped much more rapidly in. The foot soldiers, who were enrolling themselves for the party of the Lord Commissioners, as de Montfort's faction was called, though infinitely more numerous, being very much longer in their march and more easily intercepted and driven back by the enemy. To counterbalance the depression, however, which the increasing strength of Edward and Gloucester might have spread through Hereford, rumours came daily of a great rising of the citizens of the capital in favour of de Montfort. And there was also on his side that great moral support which is given by the assurance of being at the head of a great popular movement. For, that the cause of de Montfort was the popular one, no one can doubt who reads the ballads, the legends, or the histories of the day. The people, beyond all question, looked upon that renowned leader not only as the champion of their rights and liberties, but as a hero, which he really was, and as a saint, which he probably was not. Still, the camp of de Montfort suffered many severe defections. In political contests, the love of novelty and of change affects many more men than one would at first sight suppose causing them to seize any pretext for abandoning a party to which they have been for some time attached and for going over to the other which they have constantly opposed. Dissensions with their leaders or their fellow partisans, disgusts at trifling acts of neglect, even weariness of habitual associations, will produce in others the same effect, and thus a great number of the nobles who, before the famous Battle of Lewis. "'supported the Earl of Leicester, "'now framed or discovered an excuse "'for following the example of the Earl of Ashby and his son "'and joining the forces of Gloucester and Prince Edward. "'A few, too, really doubtful of de Montfort's real intentions "'and fearful of his growing power, "'either retired from his party without espousing that of the prince "'or abandoned him entirely and prepared to oppose him in arms.' Many of his weaker partisans, though adhering still to his cause, were alarmed at this defection, and looked grave and sorrowful at the intelligence received of the enemy's movements. But the earl, though as serious in his demeanour as his age and character might require, was still firm and cheerful, as were all his principal counsellors and companions. None seemed less depressed than the old Earl of Mothmer who had always a hopeful and courteous answer to give to everyone. "'We shall beat them yet, my good friend,' he said in answer to a somewhat timid and new-seeking gentleman, who stopped him while riding down from the castle to his inn. "'We shall beat them yet, do not fear, unless some great and extraordinary error is committed on our side, or some inconceivable piece of good fortune occurs upon theirs, they must be defeated, as they were at Lewis.' But I see, said his companion, that the earl has proclaimed, not the earl, but the king, interrupted the old lord, it is the king who has proclaimed Gloucester and all his adherents traitors, but that makes very little difference. In contentions like these, every man is called a traitor in his turn, whatever side he takes, and as for those who have gone over to the enemy, do not let their defection alarm you, it is better always to have an open enemy than a false friend and a wise general gives all cowards and waverers a prompt order to quit the ranks of his army not only as a useless but an injurious encumbrance such cheerful words and a few gallant acts performed in a casual skirmish here and there kept up the spirits of the soldiery in hereford and the neighbouring towns till at length such a number of men were collected as seemed to justify de Montfort in taking the field, although the army of the prince might be, perhaps, by one half more numerous than his own. The movements of the great earl after marching out of Hereford became of a strange and incongruous character, which greatly puzzled and embarrassed many of his best supporters, and which have not been clearly understood even in our own time but de Montfort's countenance remained calm and tranquil, even in the midst of what seemed to ordinary observers, checks and reverses, and it was remarked that the two or three noblemen, who were in his most intimate councils, maintained the same serene aspect whatever circumstances occurred. At the head of a large force, Edward interposed between the army of the Lord's Commissioners and London, moving as it moved, and practising with consummate art the science of strategy, as it was known in those days, with the evident purpose of keeping his adversary at a distance from his resources, without giving him battle, exactly at his own time and place. De Montford, in the meantime, affected to manoeuvre skilfully for the purpose of passing Edward's superior force, without fighting, and making his way direct to London but in all these operations the prince seemed to have the advantage, turning his opponent at every passage as the greyhound does the hare. Many facts have since been discovered which have induced modern historians to suppose that de Montfort sought merely to amuse his adversary, but at the time two circumstances only led the closer observers in the Earl of Leicester's camp to believe that that great man had a covert object in view and that he was not actually so completely frustrated by his opponent as appeared upon the surface. The first was that perfect equanimity to which we have alluded, and which he maintained under every apparent reverse. The second was a degree of anxious impatience, which manifested itself upon the arrival of many of the messengers who were constantly coming and going between his camp and the south-eastern parts of the country. These facts, in those who remarked them, created a suspicion that the Earl was waiting for reinforcements, not choosing to risk a battle till they had joined him, and at length a circumstance occurred which confirmed this opinion, and quieted the anxiety of many who had begun to fear that ill success was hanging over the very commencement of their career. Towards the middle of July, the army approached the small town of Newport, after having attacked and taken Ask which was feebly defended by some of the Earl of Gloucester's adherents. It seemed evidently the intention of de Montford and his counsellors to cross the Severn, a few miles above Newport, and take possession of Bristol, and orders to that effect had been actually given. Few vessels, however, capable of transporting the forces of the Earl, were found at the spot where de Montfort had ordered them to be collected, and Edward himself was known to be in the neighbourhood but several ships and galleys of a considerable size were to be seen, moored at the opposite side. And Hugh de Mothama, who commanded an advance party, threw himself into a passage-boat with a small force and crossed the estuary t- towards a point where he believed he could make good his defence, while he dispatched the vessels to the opposite shore to bring over the main army of the Earl. His proceedings, as far as they were suffered to go, proved entirely successful. He effected his landing, repulsed a body of the enemy who attempted to dislodge him, and secured a place of disembarkation for the rest of the forces, when, to his surprise, while he was endeavouring to induce the seamen in other vessels to cross to the Welsh shore, a messenger reached him in a small rowboat, commanding his immediate return. Hugh obeyed at once, and, proceeding to the headquarters of de Montfort, he found his uncle and Lord Ralph Bassett, "'in conference with the Earl of Leicester. "'The young nobleman was about to explain the motives of his conduct, "'but de Montfort stopped him, saying, "'You did quite right, my young friend, "'but Prince Edward and I, you must know, "'are as two chess-players, where the game is life and power, "'and neither he nor I must hazard one rash move "'if we would avoid destruction. "'I know my own game. "'He is not aware of it, and it is necessary that he should not be so till the last moment. These words were heard by many of the gentlemen round, and rumour soon carried them through the whole host, one person repeating them in one manner and another in another, but all implying the same thing, that de Montfort had some dark secret purpose in view, and such was the confidence of the soldiery in their leader that they never doubted success would attend him, whatever that purpose was. An immediate change of movements then took place, suddenly turning into South Wales. The army ravaged a district belonging to some of the adherents of Gloucester, and in his progress de Montfort entered into a treaty with several of the native Welsh princes, by which he obtained the assistance of a considerable body of their light-armed troops. A short pause of total inactivity next succeeded, and the earl remained encamped for two or three days on the banks of the river Lug apparently with the purpose of giving some repose to his forces in the midst of the heats of July. Messengers, however, were continually coming and going. The Earl was constantly employed, either in writing or in training the troops, to various military evolutions. And after all the camp except the sentinels were sound asleep, a light was seen burning in his tent till two or three in the morning. He used his nights, says a historian of those times, more for thought and labor than for sleep. During the greater part of each day, and often during these nocturnal vigils, the old Earl of Mothomer and the Lord le Dispenser remained with de Montfort, sometimes consulting with him, sometimes writing in the same tent, sometimes examining the rude maps of that period, measuring distances and tracing out lines. But not one word did either of them utter, even to their nearest and dearest relations, in regard to the plans and purposes of the general. At length, one night towards eleven o'clock, while the army was what was both technically and literally in the field, Hugh de Mothimer received a summons written in the hand of de Montfort himself, desiring his immediate presence. The last words were, Bring your dwarf page with you. Tangle was accordingly roused from the corner in which he slept, and followed Hugh to the quarters of the earl, "'whom they found sitting in the outer tent "'in company with two or three noblemen. "'The flap of the canvas was drawn back on either side "'in order to admit what fresh air "'could be found in a sultry night of summer, "'and at one end of a table, "'round which the assembled nobles were seated, "'appeared a man, dusty with travelling "'and dressed in the garb of a Yorkshire forester. "'Here is a letter for you, my Lord Hugh,' "'said de Montford, "'enclosed in one to myself.' and he handed a small packet to Hugh de Mothama, tied, as was then customary, and fastened with yellow wax. Hugh took it, but before he broke the seal or cut the silk, he advanced to the table and examined the outside of the letter carefully by the light of one of the lamps. "'Something seems to strike you as extraordinary,' said de Montford. "'What is the matter?' "'I will tell your lordship presently,' replied Hugh, and severing the silk with his dagger, he read the contents this is good news as far as it goes he said at length in a low tone i find that my good friend ralph harland is on his road to join us together with a certain forest friend of ours he added turning towards his uncle with some seven hundred bold yeomen and foresters of york and nottingham and more will follow they are already far advanced on their way in staffordshire but i cannot help thinking my good lord he added raising his voice "'that this letter has been opened and read before it reached my hands.' "'As the young nobleman spoke, he fixed his eyes on the messenger, "'who was somewhat pale before, but became paler still when he heard the last words. "'I will swear upon the blessed rood,' he cried, "'that I never opened the packet, but brought it safely hither as I was told.' "'Who told you to bring it?' asked de Montfort, fixing his stern eyes upon him. The man hesitated a moment and then replied, "'Robin of Barnsdale.' "'What makes you think it has been opened, Hugh?' demanded the Earl of Mothomer. "'Why, my dear uncle,' answered the nobleman, "'this wax is yellow, but at the side of it is a stain of green, "'as if at first it had been sealed with another colour. "'Can our friend Robin write?' inquired de Montfort. Yea," cried a shrill voice from behind Hugh de Mothema, "'as well as a Florentine reed or a Turkey's quill in the hand of an Oxford clerk.' "'We shall soon know more, my lord,' said Hugh de Mothema. "'but this letter is not Robin's writing. "'This is from Ralph Harland, the Franklin.' "'But this,' replied the Earl, laying his hand upon another letter, "'this purports to be from the bold forester, "'praying me to send you with some men-at-arms to reinforce them as they come.' seeing that Gloucester threatens them, and they are afraid to proceed. "'That shows it to be a forgery at once,' said Hugh, in a low voice, to Leicester. "'Robin never seeks aid of any man. "'There is treachery somewhere, my lord, "'but we have means at hand of convicting this fellow. "'Now, sir,' he continued, "'tell me, and tell me true, who sent you hither, and beware, "'for if you deceive me it may cost your life.' "'I have told you already,' answered the man doggedly. "'Well, then, stand forward, my little magician,' cried Hugh, "'laying his hand upon Tandil's head. "'We hear of eastern talismans, my lord, "'whereby truth and falsehood are discovered, "'as gold and alloy by the touchstone. "'And in this boy I have such a human talisman, "'who will soon tell us how much verity there is in the fellow's tale. "'Now, Tangil, look at him well, and say if he came from Robin Hood.' "'No,' answered the dwarf, well pleased with the importance of his functions, and entering fully into the spirit of his master's figure of speech. "'Hark! I hear Robin deny him, and say he never yet set eyes upon him.' Then, tugging the young nobleman's sleeve, he whispered the words, "'Go on, ask me more.' "'And now, Tangil,' continued Hugh, "'can you tell me whose man he is?' ''Right well,'' replied the dwarf, fixing his keen gaze upon the pale face of the messenger, and then, speaking slowly, he added, ''He is Prince Edward's.'' A slight smile came upon the man's countenance for a moment, but Tangle went on almost without a pause, watching him keenly as he spoke. ''He is Prince Edward's by the Earl of Gloucester, and the Earl of Gloucester's by Richard de Ashby.'' ''Ha, ha, ha!'' I hear them laughing. When they think how they will take in de Montford and lead the Lord Hugh into a trap, and he hears them too. Look at his face! Look at his face! Certainly, that face was now as bloodless as the visage of the dead. Take him away, said de Montford in a stern tone. Take him away and hang him on the first tree. I will confess! I will confess! cried the man, falling upon his knees. Spare my life, and I will confess! "'It is your only hope of safety,' replied the Earl. "'Tell the whole truth, and you shall be spared. "'Out with it at once, and without hesitation.' "'Well, then,' said the detective imposter, in a whining tone, "'I confess I am Sir Richard de Ashby's man.' And he went on to tell how a jolly monk passing through a village in the neighbourhood of Worcester, and making merry with some soldiers, had been recognised by one of the servants of Richard de Ashby, and instantly arrested.' On searching him strictly, the letter from Ralph Harland to Hugh de Mothimer had been found, wrapped in leather between his sandal and the sole of his foot, and a plan was instantly formed both for cutting off the party of the young Franklin and Robin Hood and also for leading Hugh de Mothimer into an ambuscade. The Earl of Gloucester and Roger Mortimer, he said, had been made acquainted with the plot, but not the prince. "'Take him away!' "'said de Montfort, after the story was told, "'take him away and guard him strictly. "'We may have occasion to account with these gentlemen at some future time. "'Now here is an opportunity,' he continued, "'as soon as the pretended yeoman was removed, "'which some men would seize for cutting off whatever troops the rebels may detach "'in execution of their pitiful schemes. "'But I think, my good lords, we must not waste our strength upon skirmishes.' At any moment we may have to act suddenly with our whole force and therefore we must cast away the occasion that now presents itself of lopping off a limb from our enemy. Nevertheless, we must not forget the safety of our friends. Some faithful messenger must be sent at once to meet the reinforcements from Nottingham and Yorkshire and give them notice to take a circuit through Shropshire. Shrewsbury is ours and all the country round, so on that road they will be safe." "'Have you anyone you can send?' Hugh looked at the dwarf, and the boy clapped his hand gladly, exclaiming, "'Let me go! Let me go!' "'So be it, then,' said Hugh. "'I will provide him with the means at once, my lord. "'He had better have no letter but a purse well filled and a swift horse. "'He will not fail a word of the message.' "'Hark!' cried de Montford. "'There is a sound of galloping from the other side of the river. "'The messenger's at length, I trust.' Do you know your errand, boy?' "'Right well, great man,' answered the dwarf, "'and I will not fail either in speed or truth.' "'What ho! Stand! Who goes there?' demanded the sentinels, who were placed about fifty yards from de Montford's tent. "'A friend!' was the reply. "'Stand, friend, and dismount!' cried the sentinel. "'Letters!' answered the other voice. "'Letters from the Lord Simon de Montford to his father, the most noble Earl of Leicester.' "'Ha!' exclaimed Leicester, starting up, with his whole face beaming with satisfaction. "'At length! Let him advance!' he shouted. "'Let him advance!' And a moment after, coming forward to the opening of the tent, a man, pale, haggard and worn, presented himself bearing a small packet in his hand. "'This is for your lordship from your son,' he said. "'I left him well, at Oxford, not many hours ago, with thirty thousand men in arms.' all ready to defy the world on behalf of de Montfort. Too eager to make any reply, the Earl of Leicester took the packet, tore it open, and read, "'All is right,' he cried at length, rising with a well-pleased smile, and turning to the gentleman on his right. "'Now, my good lords, now the moment for action has come. "'To you, Mothamer, to you, le dispensé, thanks, many thanks,' for those wise and prudent counsels which have cast cool patience upon my own somewhat too impetuous nature, and enabled me to resist my own inclination to advance. Here have we amused these rebel lords and the infatuated prince in needless marches and counter marches while my son has raised the country behind them, and is already at Oxford, with an overwhelming force. He on the one side and I on the other, we have them in a net or, even if they escape from the toils which are around them, our forces united will be irresistible, and we will drive them to fight, to surrender, or to flee the land. Let every noble lord give instant orders in his own quarter of the camp to make ready for our advance an hour before daylight. And you, my lord Hugh, must now direct your messenger to lead our friends from Nottingham, by Cleebury and Wire Forest, on towards Worcester, "'keeping a keen lookout for the enemy. "'But, doubtless, ere they arrive, "'we shall have cleared the country. "'You have brought me good tidings,' "'he continued, addressing the messenger. "'Go to my steward, let him provide for you, "'and to-morrow a hundred marks shall be your reward. "'Now, for a few hours, my lord, good night. "'Good night.' "'By daybreak the next morning, "'every tent was struck and the main body of the army "'had passed the lug.' De Montford still advanced with great care and caution, throwing out scouts in all directions, and never making a movement which exposed any part of his force to sudden attack. But not an enemy was now to be met with. The whole country, as he advanced towards Worcester, was clear, and it seemed evident to all that Edward had become aware of his danger and was endeavouring to escape from it. On the evening of St Peter's Day in the year 1265, de Montfort reached a magnificent country palace of the Bishop of Worcester, called, in the language of the time, Chemistoya, or Chemertal, from which, in all probability, the name Kemsey is derived. It was surrounded by an extensive park, reserved for the chase, and therein, or in a small neighbouring village, the army lodged during the night, while the headquarters of the general and his royal prisoner were in the manor, or palace, of the bishop. The distance from Worcester was only three miles, but still no tidings reached the army of Prince Edward's movements. About seven o'clock, however, a letter was received by de Montfort from his eldest son, who was at the head of the large body of men, marching from Oxford to reinforce him. But when he opened it and read the date, his brow became clouded, and he muttered to himself, Kenilworth! Kenilworth! That is a great mistake! What does he in Kenilworth... On reading on, he found that the letter had been written just after a long night's watching in the fields to intercept the army of Prince Edward, which was said to be flying from Worcester, and that the young nobleman proposed to march on to join him on the Friday following, concluding that the Prince had made his escape. De Montfort mused after he had perused the letter twice, and then murmured, There is no help for it. There is no help for it. We must onward to Evesham with all speed. Edward flying with a large force at his command, Worcester in his power, Gloucester garrisoned by his troops. Dean Forrest, near. No, 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 that is not likely. Edward was not made to fly. We must guard against surprise. There is something under this. And ringing a small handbell which stood upon his table, he continued aloud. As soon as one of his officers appeared... "'double the guards at every avenue of the park, "'throw out some fifty horse archers on the road to Worcester, "'and barricade the farther end of the village. "'Give those orders quickly and then come back for a letter "'after directing a horse and mail to make ready for Kenilworth.' "'Kenilworth,' he added, musing. "'What had he to do at Kenilworth?' "'Hark ye,' he proceeded, once more addressing the man, "'get some diligent fellows who do not fear for their necks,' "'to make their way into Worcester as soon as the gates are open, "'and bring me tidings of what is going on. "'Promise them high wages. We must have news.' "'The officer departed, and de Montfort put his hand upon his brow, "'repeating to himself, "'What had he to do at Kenilworth?' "'My head aches,' he continued. "'Ere long perchance it may cease to ache for ever.' "'Day had dawned about an hour when, by his permission,' One of the spies who, as we have seen, had been sent into Worcester, was admitted to the chamber of the Earl of Leicester, whom he found just putting on his hauberk, proposing soon to set forth upon his march. "'I have had a narrow escape, my lord,' cried the scout. "'All the rest are taken.' "'But the news, the news!' exclaimed de Montfort, with a degree of heedlessness for human life which most veteran warriors acquire. "'The news! What did you learn?' "'Little or nothing, my lord,' answered the man, somewhat sullenly. "'I heard my companions ordered to be hanged, "'and saw Prince Edward's troops arriving in haste and disarray "'after a long night march. "'But I could only save myself by speed, "'and therefore could learn nothing more.' "'It is enough, it is enough,' cried de Montford. "'There, fellow, is your reward. "'Edward arriving in disarray at Worcester, that is enough. "'Now on to Evesham with all speed.' join my boy's forces, and then return to crush this nest of hornets with my foot. He spoke proud and exultingly. Ah, little did he know that at that moment his son's forces were defeated and dispersed, thirteen of his gallant barons killed, and a whole host of noble prisoners following the army of Edward into Worcester. End of chapter 20